The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Picture this. It's just a bit of dirt. Not that big actually. Just got some grass on it. Ain't Paraitai Place, Flagstaff, Hamilton. It's a section that's for sale just back from the Waikato River. Looks lovely. But its cost is $699,000. And back in 2001, that same section would only have cost $100,000. Much more reasonable. So what's going on here? Well, a bunch of economists from Treasury and Reserve Bank and the Housing and Urban Development Ministry have gotten together to try to work out where is the culprit, the culprit for high house prices. And they've gone to Hamilton and to Waikato to find out, to look at a specific example of what's happened to house prices and rents and incomes in one particular high growth area. And what they found was that the real culprit for high house prices was high section prices. They've risen 658% in 19 years. That is six and a half times faster than income. What on earth is going on? Well, the economists have gone through the various items. Construction costs, not really an issue. Of course, there have been lower interest rates, but those are lower interest rates that affected everyone in the world, and not everyone's section prices went up so much. So what is it? The economists from HUD, Treasury and Reserve Bank, have firmly pointed the finger at councils. They say that if councils had just released the land, opened up their land markets, flooded the market with lots more sections, both on the edge of town, greenfields, and inside town, brownfields, then we wouldn't have had this explosion of section prices. But is that actually true? I think there's a bit of gaslighting going on here. Everyone is pointing at each other, saying it's your fault for these high house prices. So what's actually going on? This week, we talked to Paula Southgate, who is the mayor of Hamilton. She should know, and she's been on the council for six years or so trying to work out how those land prices rose so quickly is quite a complicated effort. But she explains how a section on its own, a bit of dirt with some grass, is not nearly good enough. You need to go and build the pathways. You need to put in the pipes. You need to spend the money on the roads. It's quite a complicated exercise, and it's quite expensive. And for a council to do it, they have to invest hundreds of millions of dollars Now, that's fine. They could perhaps borrow the money or they could ask for higher rates from their own voters. So they've done a bit of that for the last 20 years, but now they're starting to hit their debt limits. Now, you may ask, well, well, who sets the debt limits? Surely they could just borrow more and have a slightly lower credit rating and have higher interest rates. Well, firstly, councils need permission from their own ratepayers who aren't keen on high debt and higher rates increases, but it's more than that. Because 
whenever you build one of these new suburbs, it's not just the roads and the pipes, which the council's responsible for. You also need a bunch of funding from the government itself, particularly for hospitals and schools. And then, of course, the main roads, which NZTA and Waka Kotahi are responsible for. And you also need permission from the central government to borrow more. Because at the moment, most of the councils borrow through something called the Local Government Funding Agency, which is a Wellington-based collective borrowing instrument. Effectively, it puts an official New Zealand government stamp on all of the debt that councils borrow from the big buyers who don't have the time or the ability to go one by one to all the little councils. That makes sense, but it means that the central government limits how much those big councils can borrow to cope with population growth. And this is where it gets really interesting in this game of, no, it's your fault, your fault, the finger-pointing exercise. Because councils are having to scramble to keep up with population growth. Who decides what population growth is? The central government. They're the ones who have increased migration, pulled the migration lever over the last 20 years, and rapidly increased the population of New Zealand. But they have limited the councils on how much they can borrow and have also limited themselves on what their tax rate is and how much debt they can take on. Currently, both Labour and National, really for the last 20 to 30 years, have limited the size of government to about 30% of GDP in terms of tax to GDP and 30% of GDP in terms of debt to GDP. So we have this horrible circular finger-pointing going on where the central government says it's the council's fault for not releasing the land, but actually that finger of blame should be turned back on itself because it's the central government that unleashes the migration. It's the central government that does not allow the councils to borrow, and it's the central government which also doesn't pay up its share of the infrastructure needed for all those extra people. So why does the government unleash the migration? Well, it's fantastic for GDP in the short term, and it's really good for budget deficits and turning them into surpluses, because, of course, all of those extra people pay GST and income tax. But that goes to the central government, not to the local government. And that lack of revenue sources and tools for councils stops them from borrowing more. They, of course, have their own voters, and the central government doesn't want to ask permission for extra taxes and debt from central government voters. But there's the central conundrum where a hunt for a culprit in this great land price explosion, particularly at 8 Barito Place in Flagstaff, has ended up with the economists at Treasury Reserve Bank and HUD effectively gaslighting the councils And the councils are saying, hey, we're not the only ones to blame here. It's the central government too. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Welcome into When the Facts Change to Paula Southgate, who is the Mayor of Hamilton. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So we've got this paper from Treasury and Housing and Urban Development and the Reserve Bank having a good old look at Hamilton and Waikato's housing situation and trying to work out why house prices have risen so much in not just Hamilton but all around the country, but using Hamilton and the Waikato as an example. And what they found was that uh, the Hamilton house prices um, have risen substantially and in particular Section prices in Hamilton up 658% since 2001. Why, why are the section prices in Hamilton rising so fast? I think it's a combination of aspects. Um, it is around the supply and demand aspect of land, of course, but it's also around the way that market's functioning and the development community are functioning, that we've had historical low interest rates. Um, and, of course, that was supposed to drive good outcomes and taper off and reach an equilibrium, but it didn't. The prices just kept going and going. And, um, you know, I think there are another a number of issues uh, for Hamilton, for example, large swathes of land that would be really good for housing development sit in the hands of a, of a few owners uh, who can choose to land bank and to filter out their land or who can choose to enable their land to be zoned for housing but the, um, the ability to build that stock on them is constrained in itself. So it takes time no matter. We, we have actually got quite considerable chunks of land for housing, but it hasn't altered the section price at all. So, 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 how many sections have you got out there that, in theory, could be built at the moment? It's just that the land bankers ha- are dribbling the supply out. So, effectively, you've got land that could be available, but the land bankers are not dumping it on the market. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a minute because I don't think it's all land banking, but there has been a little bit of that. Uh, But we've got, for example, you will be aware that we have a big subdivision area, Peacock, for which we received government funding in the way of an interest-free loan and some NZTA money, and that amounts to a good amount of money, Which, but it was five years ago now, so it was $290 million. $180 million of that was um, interest-free loan, which we have to pay back, and I'll come back to that point. But that area alone uh, has potential for 8,000 houses, uh, phased out over the 20 years of development because, you know, we haven't got all the infrastructure that we need in place yet, like roading and water, wastewater in particular, for the southern part of Hamilton. Uh, so all of these things are contingent on access to that infrastructure, which we're trying to put in as fast as we can. In addition, we've got Rotokori on the north East, uh, northwest of Hamilton, which would deliver another 4,000-plus homes uh, in Stage 1 and 3,000 in Stage 2. We've got Rotatuna North, which is, still has a little bit of supply to, to roll out. And then um, uh, you'll be aware that Waikato Tainui, with their inland port development, want to rezone a portion into housing, and that could deliver about 3,000 uh, with small pocket of land in the north of Hamilton to Yawa Lakes, another 900. And then we've got the considerable amount of supply we could do in the CBD, which we'll probably talk about, because um, so we're doing 53% at the moment infill. 
which is an interesting statistic, isn't it? Mm. So there's two ways you, you can increase the supply of land for housing, either uh, brownfields, so infill, as you're talking about there, or by doing it with greenfields. And you've talked about um, uh, peacocks and on the edges, the north and the, um, the east of Hamilton. The suggestion in the paper from the Reserve Bank, HUD and the Treasury is just as any problem can be solved by increasing supply, why couldn't Hamilton just uh, deal to these high section prices by completely opening up for development on both the edges and in the middle of town uh, and you know, try to bring section prices down that way? Mm. Well, that's a good question, but we're constrained by a number of factors. First of all, as I say, the ability to roll out the infrastructure in a timely fashion. So we've been going down the road of having a strategic approach. We've got the Hamilton Metro Spatial Plan. We've worked with our boundary, uh, our councils across the boundary, Waikato and Waipa, with Future Proof. So we've got a strategic plan for growth, which includes incorporating more of their land into our boundary with their agreement. So that's a negotiation, of course, and um, also includes the infill development that we want to do to revitalise our CBD. And we've mapped out um, areas where we thought development would grow faster, and they're all around commercial nodes where there's access to shops and services and transport, um, schools, all of those kind of things we, we focused on. But that has been trumped, of course, by uh, the new medium density rules the government have placed on us as a tier one council, which now means uh, anybody could put a three-storey apartment anywhere in Hamilton and we would have to provide the um, infrastructure. My response to government has been, show us the money, help us out with this infrastructure challenge because we are already very nearly at our maximum debt to revenue um, cap. Could you explain that that maximum debt to revenue cap from your point of view as as the mayor who's got the finger on the pulse of the finances? Because my understanding is that the councils all have fantastically good credit ratings, uh, in many cases double A, and in effect they're backed by the central government through local government funding agency. So there's a lot of demand for these bonds. Why don't the councils just um, go out there and borrow the money and get cracking with all this infrastructure? Well, that's a good point, um, but it is around the equity of the costs to current ratepayers versus future ratepayers and the costs that the developers themselves may bear. We are, in fact, talking about that. We're talking about our credit rating because we do have an excellent credit rating. Having said that, we already have an ambitious infrastructure program, and that's going to bring us right up to that 300% debt-to-revenue ratio, more or less, the other factor, to, and we're, we're currently sitting at about 280-something, uh, we'll get very close to the maximum and then we'll come back. So we are using some of that flex. But I have to say also we have not balanced our books for some time and previous mayors have tried to adjust through rates, rates hikes that issue so that we can balance the books. COVID dealt us a really um, a bad card because... Uh, <laughs> You know, costs are going up. We can talk about construction costs and things in a minute. But all costs are going up. Cost of living is going up. So ratepayers are hurting. And so to get our annual plan program done this year, what we've actually done is to put that back on the debt 
as opposed to all on the ratepayers. We're we're posting a 4.9% rates increase this year as it is, and it was unpalatable to put the whole burden on ratepayers. So we've put it back on that. So when you say unpalatable to put the burden on on ratepayers, um, you could argue that uh, it's a good thing for Hamilton to have a lot more people there, a lot of population, uh, a lot more demand for services and products in the shops and the factories and the um, various services offered by the business people of Hamilton, not to mention, you know, lots of extra construction and development. Surely it's a, it's a good thing. Why are ratepayers um, so reluctant to allow higher debt and higher rates to deal with significantly fast population growth? I think they'd probably be more keen on a higher debt than higher raise. One of the particular issues in the last two years is the way that our small, medium business is hurting because of the COVID effects. So they are really struggling and we need to be mindful of enabling them to get back up on their feet and keep the economy of Hamilton ticking over. Uh, the cost of living is extraordinary at the moment. We you know, had a lot of conversation on the television about the price of butter. But, you know, it's indicative of the huge costs that that the community are facing. Uh, We had a big rates increase last year, 9.8. Then we went to the 4.9. That was always forecast in the long-term plan, so there's no surprises there. And yet next year we're dropping to 3.8 for the remainder of the 10-year plan. That's been through a big consultation process through the long-term plan, and that's what we agreed with the community would be the cost going forward. And I do believe that ratepayers are owed some rates certainty when they themselves are struggling to pay for their big mortgage or get into a home or keep their business afloat. So it was it's always about balancing rates affordability versus setting up for success and growth. It's not straightforward. So you mentioned there the uh, debt limit of 300% of uh, your revenue, three times revenue. Uh, when I buy a house, um, I might buy a house for a million dollars and I might have to come up with a deposit of 200000 and borrow 800000 But my income might be only 100000 or 150000 And the bank seems fine with me borrowing five or six or seven times income. Uh, and I'm guessing that the council owns a lot of assets around uh, Hamilton and has a lot of equity, if you like. Why can't you borrow more than three times income? Um, when I buy a house, I can borrow much, much, much more. We are constrained by government limits, uh, That that's for sure. So our approach has been um, to maximise the use of our debt because these are extraordinary times and extraordinary needs. But the other approach that we've been taking is to enter into funding partnerships, is to look for willing partners. And we're doing some really good work around that. We're doing some work with Kainga Order through their community housing provision. Uh, Let's just note that we have 1,500 people living in motels across Hamilton at the moment who've been waiting for homes for a very long time. Uh, so we're working with um, Kainga Aura, not just on community housing, but rent to buy, Papa Kainga, um, and of course, rental, just plain rental. So we're looking at a mixed offer um, to revitalise some of our older parts of the city where they already own land. We're looking at some council land. We've got some land in the CBD 
Um, we welcome government's direction uh, that we can build six storeys or above because in the CBD and in the commercial, near commercial nodes, that seems utterly reasonable. And, you know, we've seen in lovely uh, modern cities around the world that that can be done really well. So we embrace that and we're looking at doing partnerships on, the, on three or four blocks of land which we own with developers to see what we can do there. You mentioned that the new rules that say you, say you can build three townhouses three storeys high on every section in Hamilton uh, will, if it was done, would in theory, you know, really stress out the existing infrastructure that you've got in terms of pipes and footpaths and roads and and, and that sort of thing. Can you tell us, you know, uh, how much of a infrastructure strain that three-storey, three-townhouse rule is for Hamilton? How much flex have you got inside the city limit? Uh, well, we'd, pl- we'd planned on a strategic n- a growth node approach. So we had costed up all the infrastructure to build in those areas. The developers were aware uh, through Future Proof and the Hamilton Metro Spatial Plan exactly where those nodes would be and where they had opportunities to develop. Uh, what we don't know is exactly what the demand will be and what the cost, therefore, will be on scattergun approach to development. So we are trying to, we're going to have to, like all councils in this situation, we're going to have to amend our district plan. So we're looking at how we balance some of the competing factors there in the district plan around what the developers may need to assist us with and what we can legitimately do. So have you worked out how much extra it will cost you in infrastructure just to keep up with that, that new direction from Wellington? I don't know the exact price uh, of, of this new approach, and that's part of the trouble. We've got staff scrabbling to understand what it actually means for us because, you know, as I say, we were taking a different direction. And let me just say, in that, I'm pretty disappointed in government know that. I've had conversations with Minister Wood, Minister Woods, and Minister Robert Robertson on this, where I've said, hang on a minute, you have endorsed and noted that Future Proof is one of the leading strategic directions in the country. You've said that Hamilton's ahead of the game with spatial planning, and yet we're going, going to be forced to go in a different direction, and we're not happy about that, and we did submit against it. But, you know, at the end of the day, when government makes legislation, Local government can't just say, nah, we don't like that, we're going to do something different. We have to give effect to legislation. I guess otherwise they'll be putting commissioners in any time soon. <laughs> but um, New Zealanders are quite good at being passive-aggressive in a, in a, in a slightly rude way of, um, you know, uh, saying, you may want me to do this, but I'm not particularly enthusiastic. And it's interesting that this isn't the first government that has ordered councils to uh, open up more land for housing. Uh, the previous national government uh, tried uh, special housing zones and um, various other uh, things and, and also had an infrastructure uh, fund which they were going to help councils with funding. But that didn't seem to help much at all. At its core, it seems to me there's a, a fundamental uh, disconnect between councils and government in that councils don't actually see that growth pays for growth, so to speak, that they don't see the benefits of massive population growth and all the cost of the infrastructure that goes with it because they have no share of GST and no share of income tax. And the government can 
flick the switch on migration and population growth and then force the costs down to councils. And then if councils don't want or can't pay for it, you end up with a massive increase in residential land prices, which is a disaster for first home buyers. But on the face of it, actually, there's a bunch of people who are going, yeah, I know we're supposed to invest in this stuff, but I just took advantage of a 658% increase in my land value, and I didn't have to do anything about it. How, how, do, how do councils square that circle of the government orders them to do things, the government pulls the migration lever, and then we have to pay the costs? Well, that is a very good question, and I don't have a simple answer to it. Um, obviously, we're still continuing to advocate government that if they see Hamilton as delivering part of New Zealand's um, housing solutions, then they better lean in and give us some assistance with um, infrastructure. Um, for example, one that uh, we have in the pipeline at the moment is the Infrastructure Acceleration Fund. And we've got a bid in there and we're still live with that bid at the moment and we're hopeful. Now, that's that's um, focused on the CBD and it's all of that high-rise apartment living in the CBD, walkable catchment, cycling, living close to work, all of those good things. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how we are considered because it's different from a big greenfield development where you're getting lots of shiny new houses. It's really a rebuild of the CBD to incorporate housing. Um, you know, if the government is serious about us um, meeting our obligations, we need to be um, considered seriously for some of our requests, including the Infrastructure Acceleration Fund. And one more... We've got the, the HEF, the Housing Infrastructure Funding, which is a loan. So we've been going to Minister Robertson and saying, could you move the HEF to an F? Could you um, make it a grant, not a loan, which enables this, this um, additional uh, funding level that we can invest in the other areas of Hamilton and get them across the line sooner? So there are some things that um, government can do. Take on board your point about GST and, and agree with you. We've pushed for having that GST come back into the local areas. But you make a very good point. Government hasn't shown uh, very good alignment with the strategic plans of the big metros. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25, 26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. 
Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. I'm curious too about this issue of population growth. The Productivity Commission came out uh, with its report on migration a few months ago in which it recommended the government come up with a government policy statement on uh, population growth in the long run so that both sides of parliament and both central and local government would have a clear clear and credible idea of how much population would grow. Because I'm sure when the um, councillors and mayor of mayors of, of Hamilton in the early 2000s and in the 1990s had no idea or no real expectation that they would see the sort of population growth that you have seen. And um, not just because it's Hamilton and the Waikato, but of course because of the overflow from uh, from uh, Auckland and the key role that Hamilton now has as the growth corner of the Golden Triangle. And uh, what do you think of this idea that, you know, there should be a bit more of a, a plan <laughs> for population growth? Because we're having this situation right now. Uh, just over the weekend, the government has relaxed its migration settings for temporary workers. The opposition say if they get into government next September, October, they will pull the lever hard and bring in lots and lots of temporary workers. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a, you know, a quid pro quo here. Yeah, we'll we'll ramp up the population growth, but we won't do <laughs> do the infrastructure funding. So what would you like to see in terms of, you know, population, migration, communication, policy statements, targets um, that were credible with so that councils could do their planning properly? Yeah, well, all of those things do need to be integrated. And we've taken a very close look at what Hamilton's projected population growth is. We did include um, an assessment of migration, but that, of course, was before the COVID restrictions to entry. Uh, nobody's quite sure when the um, uh, pedal is going to come off the throttle and we're going to have this, you know, more uh, more migrants coming in because they are attracted to the working and education opportunities of the Waikato. But in, in respect to some other metros, we're a little bit different because we have one of the youngest populations. We have a lot of under 35s who are resident here anyway, which means that they're, and because they're not travelling overseas quite the same as they were before, they're staying here, they've got employment opportunities and they're going to have families. And, you know, so we are going to see a natural increase in our population any case. Um, so that needs to be factored in. And those people represent the people who aren't in housing at the moment because they can't afford it, uh, you know, unless 
And, and uh, look, I'm, uh, my family is a typical example. My two daughters would not be in their first home without um, going to the bank of mum and dad, nor, nor would my lovely colleague um, Sarah Thompson, who was talking to me today about how she was able to leverage off um, funding loans from her parents to get some equity to buy her house. And that's how it, that's how it is. And what about the people whose whose parents don't own property? How how do they live in a society? Well, that's right. Uh, my daughters are exceptionally fortunate to be able to have um, a contribution from their mother, contribution from their father, to both their student loan. Let's let's acknowledge that some of those students are carrying massive loans as well, and to a deposit in their house. And I'm guarantor to their their mortgage as well. So you know, other people do not have that same opportunity. Um, and it's just, can I say, I think there's becoming a, an increasing division between the haves and have-nots in this um, whole area. Uh, it's election time, so I'm in about like everyone else trying to find a, a fence for my signs or no, door knocking or going to events, or whatever. And, you know, there are some beautiful, shiny new suburbs where, you know, the houses are large, they've got a three-car garage, they've probably got a walk-in scullery and maybe a backyard pool and, and so on. And they're near the new community amenities, the new parks, the new swimming pool that's being built. And then we have the older parts of the city, which you may have thought a number of years ago would be start to become and be refreshed and done up. But people just don't have the money to A, get out of their house and go to a bigger one and free it up for a first-time buyer or to do it up. So, you know, there's um, there's some areas that are, are looking very tired and sad. So um, we, it's almost like we have two completely different populations. So what would you do with a clean sheet of paper? You know, let's make you the Prime Minister and the Mayor of Hamilton. <laughs> uh, you know, if we were aiming to do what this Treasury paper says, which essentially is, you know, do an unlimited unleashing of land supply for housing both brownfields and greenfields and uh, took the funding constraint away, how would you do it? Would you, you know, um, use central government funding? Would you use council funding? Um, what, what would be your clean sheet of paper solution? Two things probably. I would look for funding partnerships, which are between central government and local government around the core infrastructure, but also other potential partnerships, which might involve developers, pub, um, public-private agreements, might involve um, some overseas investment even, or, um, you know, or entering into arrangements with developers around uh, front-end costs and meeting them later, smoothing the smoothing the costs over time. So those sorts of things. The other thing is I'm a massive fan of spatial planning. I think we've shown great strength in our spatial planning and the funding and the requirements should match the spatial planning. But what we've gone away from that and we've done scattergun, we're just scattering seeds, right, Ho hoping they will all grow rather than having a dedicated focus and I think we need to go back to agreeing where growth will happen and how we'll make it happen rather than trying to be all things to every, everyone everywhere. Because uh, whenever a decision is made to develop a particular area, it's not just the council that has to invest money and make decisions. You've got decisions that have to be made by NZTA Waka Kotahi, which is a centralised funding decision from Wellington. Then you've got decisions that have to be made by the Ministry of Education about schools and universities and the likes. 
And then, of course, you've got the uh, Ministry of Health and um, the new uh, health authority making decisions about where to put hospitals or where to do clinics and all of that sort of stuff. And I do wonder sometimes if the fingers of blame being pointed at Wellington could easily be turned on themselves, given that at least half of the infrastructure uh, funding restraints that would allow the opening of this land um, come from Wellington itself. Absolutely. And we talked before about how there are competing pieces of legislation. So you've got this housing enabling legislation, but at the same time, you've got the natural environment legislation through the RMA that requires us to look after protective, uh, productive land where food grows or look after the quality of waterways so that, you know, you can't put too much stormwater into that, um, that catchment. Biodiversity needs to be protected. So we need to make sure that our SNAs, our special natural areas are in place. We need to make sure that we're protecting heritage, etc, etc. And it's all layers of constraint that we have to work through. And um, we're, we're getting up towards uh, election time. You're standing again to be the Mayor of Hamilton and there are a bunch of uh, council candidates. How, how do the voters and how do the, the candidates feel about the council being painted into a corner, pushed into a corner by um, Wellington on all sorts of things. And, of course, we've got the Three Waters debate. And in my view, Three Waters is an attempt to solve this um, uh, infrastructure financing issue, Um, but it's been caught up uh, with the co-governance debate as well. So how do do voters in Hamilton uh, um, feel and what are the risks here Uh, with the candidates and um, the various contests going on? Mm, There is a risk because I think the public feel like control has been slipping away from them, local control, their perception of what local government should do on their behalf and how they engage with local government to make decisions for their own communities. It seems to be taken from them. It's also creating an incredible rift between people who are either on the you know, pro side of reform or the anti side of reform. Our council hasn't been favourable to most of the reforms that have been coming down the pipeline. My personal view is that we always need to try and shape the future and give a better alternative, that just saying no, no government, go away, isn't an effective approach because they'll do what they want to do. As you say, there are financial benefits of some of the changes to the government. So we might better start thinking cleverly about how we propose something alternative that is better for Hamilton. That's how I feel about it. You know, it's not about rolling over and being tickled at all, but it's about having a constructive solution-focused attempt at creating a new reality. That's the only way we can get forward. It's hard for the public because, you know, they've got other things on their mind right now. We're still uh, seeing the impacts of COVID on staff. We're seeing uh, the cost of supplies go up. We're seeing cost of groceries going up. We're seeing the whole thing. So people are unsettled. They're anxious. And uh, I think that will play out in in the elections um, this year and then, of course, next year as well with the national elections. Um, interesting things are happening in the polling there. So, you know. We'll we'll see. Um, Paula Southgate, uh, the Mayor of Hamilton and a candidate to run again for a second term as Mayor, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you for having me. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network. 
together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.